uh, listeners, those of you on the East Coast. Um, and it's a nice, beautiful afternoon here in Seattle on the West Coast. We, you are listening to the Young Adult Cafe. My name is Laura Moe. My guest today is YA thriller writer Carolyn Cohagen. She's got a very interesting past. So let me get my music playing, and we'll get my interview started momentarily. Um, well, good afternoon, Carolyn. Well, good afternoon to you. It's, good, it's evening out there, out in the um, you're on the East Coast, and uh, I'm in Austin, Texas. So it's actually about five oh. o'clock here. So it's still bright okay. and sunny okay. and, and hot enough that it feels like the afternoon. Okay, okay, yeah. I guess I guess I'm used to um, a lot of my writers on the uh, East Coast, but you know, Texas. That's one of the things that's interesting. Texas has a lot of writers. I've interviewed tons of writers from Texas. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it's have fantastic. A, yeah, it is. It's very supportive of its writers, especially young adult writers. Um, and tons of romance writers come from that area as well. And uh, so, you know, even though it's a red state, there's a lot of writers in Texas. So, you know, kudos it's been a really Texas. nice surprise. Yeah, I, I grew up here, but I, I left for 23 years, and uh, mm-hmm. I most recently came from Los Angeles, where I knew a ton of writers uh, and, and spent all my time with writers. So when I moved back, I was concerned that I would not have that community of writers anymore. Uh, but I, I really do here. Um, there are incredible mm-hmm. writers here, novelists, and so many female novelists. It's really been fantastic. Yeah. Oh, and they, um, in, in Texas, they have several. Um, young adult book festivals all over the, you know, mm-hmm. I've had many friends who they've traveled to Texas just for, uh, uh, there's one in Corpus Christi that takes place, I believe, in February, and they have some big-name writers who go to that. And kids come from all over the place to participate and meet the writers and buy their books. And, um, you know, it's uh Listen, if nothing else, Texas is, Texas is huge. I mean, that's the thing yeah. about Texas, right? <laughs> they can really yeah. support Many right. festivals, many writers, you know, um, mm-hmm. you can have a lot of events going on in different parts of the state because it's it's a big, yeah. big place. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's kind of like Hollywood. I mean, everybody's a screenwriter there. You're either a screenwriter or an actor. And, uh, yes. So some of them are both. And um, Yes, that is very true. Now you, well, we'll talk about your book in a minute, uh, actually your series, but, uh, you know, when I was advertising your show, I was also – telling, you know, I was sending out tweets, you know, saying about how, you know, this writer is also interesting because you have been, um, you've been a stand-up comic, which is a career in itself, and uh, you've also traveled globally to teach uh, children, you know, in different places of the world, and you also have formed a publishing company that's expressly for helping um, girls, it's called Girls with Pens for helping girls get their work out there. And uh, so, you know, we 
you've just those just that alone, it's like you've got three careers in one. Plus your bachelor's degree is in art history, which seems kind of unrelated, <laughs> but but it's not, you know. Yeah. I have a bachelor's in, in art myself and I don't do much with it other I mean, I have a few paintings on my walls, but <clears throat> you know, it's the stuff we do in our past I think influences our writing. And uh in what ways do you find that you're like how does how did your comedy or perhaps your world travels or any of the art history how did any of that figure into um the whole concept of time zero and when you talk about time zero and time next tell the um listeners a little bit about well I guess my description of it would be the handmaid's tale meets the hunger games but give the uh you know mm, I like about, that thank you yeah, well, you know, I always think in terms of Hollywood elevator pitch because, you know, that's what yeah, you're off sure. to do now because there's all these tweet pitches when you're pitching your work trying to get an agent's attention. It's like, okay, but how could, you know, what are the comps to that? And it's like, and I, I always think in terms of movies or, you know, in books and it both, of well, they're both. But tell the uh, the audience a little bit about your series you know, in terms of thinking about how your past has influenced how you came up with the concept. Well, um, I, I like your description very much. I think it's very flattering. And at the time that I was writing Time Zero, I would say, actually, I think that this is a young adult handmaid's tale. Um, and um, that was before, you know, Hulu had done the miniseries. And, you know, I, I started writing mm-hmm. Time Zero in 2010. Um, so I did want uh, to have uh, a, a, a book that was for younger readers um, that they would find as exciting as The Hunger Games, something that was really a page turner um, and that, you know, that was appropriate for a younger audience. Um, and so the book that I've written, okay, so Time uh, Zero is about fundamentalists taking over Manhattan. And it's about a 15-year-old girl named Mina and at the beginning of the book and the series, uh, she's just turned 15, and it's the day of her offering, which means that um, suitors are going to come to her house uh, and decide if they're perhaps interested in marrying her, and then they will uh, go into a contract with her father. So she really has no say in who she's going to marry. Um, education is illegal for girls. Uh, learning to read is illegal for girls. Um, she's not allowed to speak first. If she approaches a man, she has to wait for them to speak first. Um, and she's completely covered, um, her body and her face. And, uh, I say right in the beginning before the book starts that, um, although the religion is fictional, all of the rules are real and they're all sourced on my website. So, um, they come from extremist religions outside the United States, but also inside the United States. Um, So that was important to me. I really wanted my readers to know that this is not, um, these are not coming out of, you know, the 18th century um, and they're not, or a thousand years ago, that they're happening right now and that there are girls everywhere uh, living under these rules. Um, And yeah, go ahead, sir. Well, I was going to say in the news that was that I think it was in Somalia, was it that they had all those girls that got gathered up? It was one of the African countries. 
And there were like it was in Africa, yeah. It was yeah, West Africa, yeah. Um yeah. where uh Boko Haram, yeah, kidnapped all the girls. Um and right. some of them recently came back. And you know, and again, like in like in many um situations where it became a big cause <clears throat> for Americans for a while and it was a big hashtag and then it kinda went away for a while, you know, until they um recently some of them were returned. Um, but yeah, they were kidnapped and uh, made to become, you know, brides. I mean, I feel like sort of best case scenario, um, but unbelievably young girls, right, taken away mm-hmm. um, from their families, um, basically to be enslaved. Um, so yeah, yeah, that was really, really horrific. And a lot of the rules that I took uh, for the first book are from the Taliban. And they uh, reflect, you know, things that Malala uh, Yousafzai was uh, protesting when she got shot. And she got shot after I started writing Time Zero. Mm. Uh, And, yeah, and uh, I'm, you know, of course, kind of, you know, ate up her autobiography. And I I, I follow her journey very closely. but I also was very interested in fundamentalism within the United States, right? So that was a really important part of the series for me is that Americans talk a lot about fundamentalism. And when they mention fundamentalism, they tend to always mean one thing, right? It, it always just sort of is like, it's like just code. It just means, oh, we're talking about Islam. And for right. me, I I felt like there was a lot of hypocrisy there because there's so much fundam- fundamentalism going on within the United States that also harms mm-hmm. girls. Oh yeah. And the series for me is, is all about how extremism really disproportionately affects girls. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so I wanted to examine how all fundamentalism does that, not just extremist, you know, Islam. So uh, I I look at all forms of fundamentalism with the United States, um, including, you know, our our biggest forms of fundamentalism. Uh, And Time Next, the second book, is, I would say, much more focused on the fundamentalism that's within the United States. Right. Yeah, I think the first book, you're just developing Mina and the the whole um, cast of characters, and then uh, you get deeper into the because I think that Time Next is probably a little more political of a novel than the first one. The first one is more um, just getting the story started. But uh, well, I, I, it's I, interesting. I think that probably depends on your politics. I mean, right? It might depend right. on your politics and your culture and where you come from. Because in, to be mm-hmm. honest, like in some ways, there were a couple people that were mad about Time Zero. You know, there were a couple mm-hmm. people that were angry about some things I wrote in Time Zero. And then with Time Next, you're like, oh, it might be a whole other group. Um, and, and for me that was, but it was also interesting to sort of be like, okay, well, maybe some people that got totally behind time zero, um, and we're like, yeah, all these rules are terrible. Um, then might read time next and be like, oh, wait a minute. Um, now she's talking about us, you know, like, um, Mm -hmm. in some ways it might be a bait and switch, right. That, um, that they, uh, the reader might think that the, that the first book is talking about you know, other people, not us, you know. Right. Well, you know, I think uh, but that the, the second book is the really, recent, like, you know. The recent elections, of course, have changed a lot of people. It's brought misogyny kind of to the forefront. Oh, yeah. Because yeah. we've 
Yeah. We never thought of our society as being particularly misogynistic or particularly Islamophobic until recently. Exactly. All of a sudden now exactly. all of the right wings are you know, the right wingers are coming out. They've been they've been empowered. By the current well, I don't think regime. any of us would have ever believed that um, our society would tolerate this kind of misogyny, right? That, right. that we thought we'd gotten to a point where, you know, of course, this kind of behavior would not be tolerated. Yeah. And here we are. Yeah, we, yeah I mean, we thought of it as fiction, as seen in mm-hmm. The Hunger Games of the Handmaid's Tale or any of these other you know, so so-called uh, speculative works. You know, they, they were speculative, exactly. not realistic. But and so many um, people have said now, that to me that have read the books. They're like, "Oh, we thought your books were fiction, and now we're a little freaked out." <laughs> maybe they're not. Yeah, I mean, they're a little you know, funny because yeah. you know, like all of a sudden, The Handmaid's Tale is back on the bestseller list, and that came out what in the eighties? In the eighties, I, I think that. I, I was going to say, I think the, 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 the series is really, really disturbing to, to watch now because mm-hmm. one of the things about the book, of course, is that it doesn't really have flashbacks to um, what I would say like the modern era, right? It, it's all kind of like um, Alfred's present situation, right? There's not a lot yeah. of talk about like, oh, here's what it was before and I was free and I was like, dancing to disco, you know, that you don't have a lot of like contrast between her before and after. And the show, what's so disturbing is seeing um, the main character and her friends living in a world that looks just like ours. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, uh, jogging on the street in New York or, you know, and then, you know, being looked at with disdain because they're in workout clothing. Right. Mm-hmm. Being like, and then, going to a march that looks just like one of our women's marches, you know, and, and then people are shot down. I found that unbelievably disturbing to have sort of like, okay, here's the handmaid's tale, which, you know, many of us have read, but suddenly they're giving you this backstory that's set right now. And that, yeah. it's really, really scary. Yeah. Cause there are, there's a part in the novel. I think there's a section where, they do flash back to where she is, you know, with her husband and her child, and it's a mm-hmm. section where ju- they're just about to escape because mm-hmm. the husband figures out, okay, something something is up. We have to go to Canada. Yeah. But right. You know, I mean, I don't want to give give it away to people who haven't. Read right. It, right. But, um, yeah. you know, I, I think it's that's what makes it so scary is that. At the time, I, and I read it back in the 80s, and at the time I thought, oh, this is kind of an interesting story. It didn't resonate with me the same way it does now, but my we read it recently no, for I one agree. of my book clubs, and it's like, holy crap, this isn't speculative. Yeah. This is <laughs> this is a documentary, you know, that because of what has, I mean, it, you know, I don't want to get into a political discussion, but I think that we, as a culture, we write and our, you know, our music, our, our literature, and um, our films reflect what is going on in our society. You know, we can't help right. but, you can't but help put it. that yeah. out there. And uh, so, you know, now we, I guess, I, I guess you'd say there's been a rise in dystopian literature, and what we can't help to have that because of kind of the climate. And for years, I think we've, 
we have kind of taken everything for granted, and now we're like, oh, you know what? This is a possibility. So now we're we're all, you know, because of what happened, we're starting to fight back, which may be a good thing. I don't know. But like we're reliving 1968. So I know, and I, I, I try and stay in that place of like, okay, the silver lining, right, is, mm-hmm. is realizing the dark underbelly and all of this misogyny and racism that still existed and that mm-hmm. a lot of us were blind to, right, and, and thinking, yeah. okay, wow, wow, okay, it's a lot worse than many of us thought, <laughs> right? But a lot of us, like, yeah. you know, the white people and the privileged people and, and you know, whatever, women, whatever, to, to sort of be like, oh, okay, actually, mm-hmm. you know, it's still really bad, and, uh, and we really need to wake up to that, and it's time to um, work harder. Um, yeah. And I, I recently saw, you know, we've had South by Southwest here in Austin, the interactive festival. We get all these great speakers. And um, Ta-Nehisi Coates was here who wrote Between the World and Me. And one of the mm-hmm. things she said really stuck with me was, it's good to write angry. Mm-hmm. Um, right there. Yeah, you know, and, and that really resonated. And I thought, whoa, okay, that's really interesting because I don't think that, uh, in the past, I would have thought that that was necessarily a positive thing, you know. But I right. thought as I go into this third book, you know, the final book of my trilogy, that idea of like, right angry, you know, that it's okay to mm-hmm. listen to the news and be fired up and then sit down, you know, to write your novel, that that's, that's not a bad thing, you know. Right. But, um, that yeah, sometimes you're going to write your Facebook. best stuff. <laughs> Don't post on right, exactly. Don't post that, you know, on he Facebook. wasn't saying Twitter. You know, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, don't think the idea like, like that. You know, Just think about it. Sometimes, you know, when obviously you're still editing and everything else, right. but that you know, it's it's yeah. not bad to to put your um, your frustration and your anger, whatever about going, you know, whatever's going on, um, you know, to put that in yeah. your fiction. Don't be afraid to hey. do that. You know. Well, you know, I think like I think that that's why the novel The Hate You Give by Angie Thomas. That novel, mm-hmm. you know, and and she did it in a way, I mean, you could tell that there's a lot of anger there, but she also did it with some love because it's not a, it's not a bait, beat yourself on the head, you know, blatant statement about racism. Oh, it's, it's so a, great. Well, and she, she creates a very three-dimensional main character who right. has ambivalence, who isn't exactly yeah. sure what she should do. Right. Right. It's not like this very clear. Oh, I know. I'm going to go. I'm going to go. You know, out into the streets and start screaming immediately. Yeah. Yeah. She's got some complex. I mean, she's got complex issues because she's going to this white day school and she's dating Mm -hmm. a white guy, Mm -hmm. and yet, you know, and she lives in. Yeah, it, it is very. You know, it's books like that that will help change our culture. Because it, you know, it, it got will bring... banned in a in a school district in Texas for a bit. Awesome! That that helps book sales. <laughs> I know it does help it, but you know, and it had it was very frustrating. My my writing group here in Austin got involved. Um, one um, one writer in particular was very fired up and wrote several um, op eds about it and spoke to the superintendent who had done it. And it turned out it was about one parent being mad about mm-hmm. language, you know, that there was yeah. a couple bad words, you know, in the first 10 pages. Yeah. Um, so it wasn't about content. The kid, she's writing about kids who live in the ghetto. They're not going to go, well, shucky darn. 
you know, oh, yeah. their friend got shot. They're not going to say, well, but it was, you know, but part you of know, the oh, crackers. Is, you know, yeah. this is a really complex subject. It's a complex novel. What better yeah. way to read it than with a teacher's guidance? Yeah, you know, exactly. like it's it's a it's a perfect book for yeah. school. Anyway, they they actually ended up relenting. They 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 dropped it, and now it's dragging. It was also interesting because we all like contributed money mm-hmm. uh, to buy copies for all the libraries within that school district. Well, the kids are gonna you know that make that makes the kids want to read it more because oh, their yeah. parents have said they don't want them to read it. Well, of course they're gonna try yeah, to dig what's it out in and there. Yeah, and you know, I will and, listen. I I think oh, if my book is banned, that'd be the best thing that ever happened to it. I know you need to get involved in scandals. <laughs> you know, that's what I, I told my writing. I told a group yesterday. We were having a discussion. It was Saturday. We got a bunch of us got together and we're talking about. Uh, we have a book club that meets kind of irregularly on um, writing books, and we were talking about how we need to get all our books banned so that they'll. You know, yeah, we can help our book sales, but uh, yeah, make the news. Yeah, you know, that's exactly what we need because books like that do change cultures, and it it we're afraid to admit that we are a racist culture. You know, we're a misogynistic culture and we're a racist culture, and we don't like to admit that about ourselves. We want to think of ourselves as the white hats, the good guys, and we're not. We're not. We're, we're no better than the rest of the world. But we like to think we are. And then when writers like you come out Absolutely. and point out the misogyny and, you know, Angie Thomas reveals, you know, brings it home with a personal story um, that everyone who, you know, on both sides of the issue finds something they can relate to, then, yeah, um, you know, it challenges the belief we have about ourselves. So, you know, I always have to credit writers who are willing to take that risk because, you know, you – when I looked at reviews of your book, you had like people who who get it, you know. Then they would, you know, you got really good kudos. And then you had a few people who they didn't like. I guess they didn't like the religious intonations. Mm-hmm. You know, they didn't like that. Mm-hmm. So, um, but you know, that's kind of the reality of the world we live in. One thing that always well, and I me, knew, I knew, like, okay, I'm talking about religion, and it's just like a yeah. firecracker of a subject, right? Like, oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, to touch it um, is is already just dangerous, and you know, you're gonna offend someone. There's just right. There's no getting around it. Yeah. yeah, my dad always used to say, you know, when you go to a party, you don't talk sex, politics, or religion. You know, there's a yeah, hot button right. that people have. and But I, I never understood the concept. I've always been confused by, you know, religious wars. That seems like an oxymoron. It's like, well, most mm-hmm. faiths are there. It's, you know, it's a sin to kill. So why are we having wars over religion? So, I know, but I don't, so many of them are religious, it's right? So I mean, yeah. For thousands they kill each of other years, over, been religious. over yeah. their beliefs. So mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. Yeah. But... But yeah, you're you know the book is timely, but um, now so you started off with a degree in art history. Now you know oh, back yeah. in college, did you think that you were going to be? What did you think you would end up doing with your with your BA in art history? Oh my goodness, I I didn't know exactly. I mean, I was at a liberal arts college uh, in New York, and so it didn't have that feeling of like. Oh, you know, you're choosing your career forever, you know, because we were studying a little bit of everything. Right. Um, I just knew that I really enjoyed it. And 
uh, I was an art history major, but with a studio art concentration. And that was the okay. closest you could get to doing like a, a you know, a visual art um, mm-hmm. major. So uh, okay. I was doing a lot of, you know, drawing and painting and what have you. And my mom's a painter. And mm-hmm. when I was in high school, uh, I, you know, I was really into art and I really enjoyed it. And I always thought, well, I want to perform or I want to be an artist. You know, I was really very mm-hmm. sure of myself and thought I, I will either be a very successful artist or a very successful actress um, because those are both very easy careers. And, mm-hmm. um, and so then, yeah, in college I was doing a lot of art and then I was also in an improv group the whole four years that I was there. So I was also performing. Um, and yeah, and then I graduated and I don't know that the performing bug had really kind of uh, caught me more than the, than the art bug. Although I've never regretted my art history degree, as you've said, you know, I feel like I use everything when I write a novel, Mm -hmm. um, all the visual stuff. And um, yeah, I I started doing stand up probably four months after I graduated uh, because I was in New York and I did stand up for about five years and the amazing thing about stand-up, and I, for many years, I never would have said, oh, yeah, I'm a writer, because when you're in the comedy world, it's so much about identifying yourself as a comic. Um, mm-hmm. But, of course, I was writing. I was writing all my own material. Right, you're writing your and routine, yeah. You're writing your routine, and I loved that, and I loved the control that I had as far as, like, oh, okay, I can get up, and um, I can talk about world politics, or I can talk about, um, you know, my smelly socks and laundry, you know, like the the kind of mundane stuff. And I I loved being able to choose what I was going to do. I, you know, you could repeat the same thing. You could do all new stuff every night. Um, There was no director. There was no producer. There was no one telling me what I should be talking about. So you were really just kind of doing all of it, right? It was a very um, just sort of, uh, I don't know, self-motivating, self-propelling career and the other thing I liked about it was and a lot of people probably I don't know if they think about stand-up this way but it's very much a skill and it's a ladder right you start at the bottom and you get better and you get better and you get better and there's no jumping ahead you know I mean in acting you know your father could be a producer and say I'm putting you in this movie you know Mm -hmm. like Godfather 3 or whatever it is you know Um, right but in Stand up, it doesn't matter. Like your mother can own the comedy club and she can say, okay, I'm going to give you 45 minutes on Saturday night at the you know best slot of the evening. But if you're mm-hmm. not funny, you're going to die. <laughs> right? just, it just doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter who right. you know or how you got the time. If, you, if you're not good, you're not good, you know, and it, it's a much steadier ladder than you'd think, right? Um, that, you know, even Woody Allen, legend has it, was like, oh, okay, he, he wrote his routine, like, in one day, but it took him many, many years to make it funny. You know, so he right. bombed, 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 bombed with the same routine until he knew how to tell it. Um, so I really liked that, that it was sort of a meritocracy. Um, mm-hmm. And I feel like I use it now... Um, it's all about rhythm of language, you know, and the, the syntax and what word goes at the end and what word goes at the beginning. And 
Um, so I, I absolutely still use it. And there's just nothing like trying something in front of a live audience. You know, you, you really can't learn about jokes and how language works and what keeps people's attention until you try it in front of a live audience and see them either react or, you know, stare at you like, you know, you're a moron. Um, <laughs> and then I started to, uh, to do theater. You know, I, I did, um, I, I went to theater school for a while and uh, I was more interested in storytelling. So I, I got tired of this sort of like joke, 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 because stand is like a joke every 20 to 30 seconds. So right. I was um, wanting to tell more long form stories. So um, I went and studied some theater. I was also more interested in learning how to play characters. And I would write these jokes and stories that had many characters, but then I would get up and I would still just tell them all in my own voice. I, w- I didn't know how to sort of perform multiple characters. So after this theater school, I, I did, you know, so I started to do one woman shows where I'd play like oh, cool. you know, 25 characters in an hour. Right. Um, so uh, I did that. I did that for many years. So I would tour um, these various festivals with my one woman shows. Um, and then that meant that I really started to write longer form things. So I started to write things that were an hour long. Right. Uh, whereas with the stand up, you know, it was five minutes at 10, 15, whatever. I think I probably started to consider myself more of a writer at that time because I was, you know, doing things that were an hour long and, and felt much more like, um, I don't know, plays or, or long form storytelling. Um, mm-hmm. And once I had done that, it was just sort of hard or impossible for me to go back to stand up because I was spoiled. I feel like now yeah. I've had all this time on stage. Plus I'm used to a theater crowd instead of a, a, a bar crowd. And a theater crowd will really listen and they'll give you more time. They don't expect a joke every 20 seconds. Um, And, you know, they're not as wasted. They're not going to heckle you. (laughs) Uh, And stand up, you know, also remember like this is, this is the nineties and there were as many female comics. Um, There was a lot of sexism going on. I was in New York. I was in London for a while. London was much worse. I'd be in London and I'd show up to a gig and they would say like, oh, you're not on tonight. We already have a woman tonight. Oh, dear. Um, wow. Yeah. Or I get an introduction wow. and they'd say like, well, I don't, I don't know this next comic, but, you know, I'd do her or I'd shag her. You know, like um, mm-hmm. totally, totally undermining whatever I was going to say first um, wow. by making me sexual, right, or talking about my body or my yeah. voice or all these things that were really, really tough. And once I entered the theater world, that didn't happen anymore. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, so then I I did theater for quite a while. Um, And then at one point I I was working on a one woman show with a a friend of mine directing and we had such fun creating the show. I mean, I'd written it and and then, you know, he was adding all this great stuff uh, while he was directing and, uh, I worked on it for a year, tons of research, and then I went to perform it at this festival. And after like three or four nights, um, I was bored. I was like, I kind of feel done. Like <laughs> I had such a great time writing it, but suddenly I didn't feel like I wanted to keep performing it. Like I was really excited to premiere it and see people's reactions, but I realized I didn't want to perform it for the next year or two or three, that the joy right. had really been in creating it. And that was a big mm. revelation for me that I thought, okay, maybe the creating yeah. of it was more interesting to me than the performing. And I think that's really when I switched over to feeling like I'm, I'm a writer and, and maybe mm-hmm. not a performer. I don't, maybe I don't need to perform anymore. Yeah. Um, interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. 
transition from not only being a writer to being a kind of a writing coach, I guess, for uh, the girls girls with pens formulation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So tell us a little bit about girls with pens. How did that start before you had the books out, or kind of concurrently with the uh, the existence of the of Time Zero and Time Next? After um, my first book is actually The Lost Children, and it's middle reader, and it oh, came right. out yeah. in two thousand. In, in 2010, um, yeah. and that was like you know with Simon and Schuster and all very traditional, um, and then time zero to the long time. I I started in in 2010 after Lost Children came out, um, and I decided to go get my master's degree in writing because I hadn't majored in English. I, I didn't have a writing degree, and I I decided I wanted to teach, so mm-hmm. um, I went to USC and got uh, got my master's in writing. And um, it was just sort of an, an, an interesting, I don't know, confluence of, of different events that mm-hmm. I moved back to Austin and uh, I'd, I'd finished Time Zero and, you know, I'd finished my degree and I was looking at different teaching opportunities. And I'd also, as you mentioned, I'd, I'd gone abroad, I'd gone to Rwanda to do some teaching uh, of many different kinds of writing. And I worked with one group of girls uh, called uh, Girl Hub, and it's a Nike organization. And Nike teaches them journalism, and they, it's girls writing about girls and, and women. And these girls were so exceptional and amazing. And I thought, like, oh, I want to work with them. I want to work for Girl Hub. But they were based in England, and there were, like, three people in the organization. You know, that was not something that was going to happen. But it really made me think about my desire to work with girls. And my research for Time Zero had really um, made that happen. You know, I had spent so many years working on the book um, and, and reading about girls and adolescent girls and, you know, not just about how extremism was damaging to them, but about, you know, how this this particular age was so important, you know, sort of eight to 15, um, mm-hmm. not just the damage that can be done, but the amazing things that can be done, you know, what a delicate time it is. And I just really wanted to work with that age. And at some point I realized I wasn't going to find my dream job. I kept looking for it. So I just sort of realized maybe I need to make it. Hmm. So um, I created girls with pens. Um, so it's a creative writing organization for girls, eight, to 15 and uh, I do summer camps all summer and I have after school programs um, and I do some tutoring uh, and I, I started it in 2014. Uh, cool. and it's so been how did you find the, fantastic. How did you find the funding for that? Would, did you do like, um, you know, kind of a group funding type thing? I mean, you went out and got some sponsors. To no, to be honest right now, you know what it is, it is not a not-for-profit. It is a for-profit organization, and someday I might go not-for-profit. Um, I have managed to get a couple of grants through bigger organizations than mine, you know, doing like an umbrella organization mm-hmm. um, that is non-profit that, that applies for a grant for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but because up till now it's just been me and my primary um, – I would say my primary career is as novel writer. Um, mm-hmm. I haven't made it nonprofit because I don't want my primary career to be grant writing. 
Right. Um, so at some point I might grow. I mean, this summer is the first time that I've actually hired two other teachers uh, because I have so many camps, uh, which is fantastic, right? So um, right. I, I, am, I am growing, and I want to be able to reach more Austinites. I had a great meeting with a, a lawyer here in Austin who helps people decide if they should be nonprofit or for-profit. And he asked mm-hmm. me the most important question, which was, you know, is your goal to get creative writing to every school in Austin or is your goal to teach because you love it? And I said, I want to teach because I love it. And he was like, well, mm-hmm. you know, then you have your answer. You know, you need to, you know, you need to stay for profit because if you become nonprofit, then you're not going to teach anymore. <laughs> um, oh, that's true. So yeah. That, you know, so that's what I'm doing right now is I, as I'm teaching. And, and the, for, as far as the it becoming a press, I only recently did that. And this summer will be the first summer that um, I will be publishing all the girls' work um, as a book at the end of the summer. Mm-hmm. Now, how many how many girls take uh, the summer camp? Is it like a week long camp or? It's a week long camp. It's a week long camp, and they're still pretty small because I do them in my my studio, um, and mm-hmm. I can comfortably do ten girls. Okay, so they're small. Um, and I feel like that's a good size for them to write and yeah, for them to just be able to, you know, for them to write and then to, to share, um, to have time for everybody to share their work. Yeah. It's, it's just a, it's like a nine to noon camp Monday through Friday. And I've recently started to do a graphic novel camp, which I started last year. And this summer for the first time, I'm doing a movie writing camp, which I'm very excited Ooh. about. That's cool. Yeah, because you probably know, yeah. having lived in L.A., because um, you've got some, well, you had some endorsements from, like, Elizabeth Banks, and who else did endorsed it? You had, um, oh, I had it written down, um, you know, several, several well-known people. Um, but yeah, Elizabeth Banks from uh, The Hunger Games. And you had uh, another actress. Okay, I was set down, and I can't. I can't read my own writing. <laughs> so, are these people who you were able? And Tim O'Brien, the writer. Uh, you know, he's a National Book Award winner. Um, now, are these people that you actually know in from having lived and worked in LA? Um, I do not know Elizabeth Banks personally, but I will say that. Um, I know a director who works with her frequently. Okay. So that definitely was like, you know, I, that's actually not even an LA connection. That's an old New York, you know, from the nineties <laughs> connection. Okay. Um, yeah. One of those things of just, they always just sort of say like, um, uh, I want to say like, you know, it's who, you know, but just, I always say to people who move to LA who are trying to schmooze, I'm like, it's not about schmoozing. It's just about making, your natural friends, you know, make friends mm-hmm. with people you actually like and, you know, who actually like you and make your strong friends because eventually some of those people are really going to make it. Yeah, you know, um, that's true. You yeah. know, and you never know who's going to make it. So you yeah, have to kind of be, really nice. Don't. Might be nice to everybody because, you know, that person <laughs> can help can help you out or they can say, eh, you were, you were rude to me. You dissed me. I'm not helping you out. Yeah, <laughs> yeah right. 
Um, yeah, so but been, for my endorsements, I definitely just reached out, you know, I reached out to everyone and anyone that I, you know, could think of that I just thought, you know, oh, wait, I know that person from back in the day and, you know, let's, mm-hmm. let's see what kind of connections they have. And it, um, and it actually worked, you know, which was um, really a nice surprise. Yeah, yeah, it's nice when, you know, I have found that um, most most writers and actually most of the famous people I've met, I would say probably 99.9% of them are, are really generous because they all started somewhere. And mm-hmm. they're willing to help out somebody who's just starting out in their career. And uh, so, you know, they, there is that, that sense of generosity because they started as somebody who just has their first book out or somebody who's still trying to make a name for themselves. So I think, you know, it's, I, I think it's admirable that, they are, that they'll take the time to do that or that, you know, they're, they're probably. I also think the rule is what I always said in yeah. LA, that whole thing of like, Oh, should you approach anybody? And I, I, I didn't do it that often, but is no one really ever gets tired of hearing how great they are. Right. You know, like, yeah, it kind of doesn't matter how famous you are that, you know, if all you're saying to someone is you're fantastic, like mm-hmm. they're not really going to not want to hear that. Um, <laughs> I always had yeah. the best, like one of my favorite run-ins ever was Elaine Stritch in New York city. And I was oh, I love her. walking along the block. Right. And I saw her and I was like, Oh my God, it's Elaine Stritch. Right. And I didn't stop and she didn't stop. We were just walking and I threw out my arms and I said, you're fabulous. And she threw out her arms and she said, thank you. Right. And we just both kept walking. It was so good. I was like, That's exactly what it should have been. Like I'm in the middle of a musical. Yeah. And you made each other's day, you know, but uh, I mean, it's, yeah, she was, she was a wonderful performer. Uh, yeah, she's the best. Yeah. I laugh. Yeah. But anyway, I mean, all of that is to say, like, I feel like um, there were times when I would get insecure about my strange path to novel writing, you know, because I, I did a lot of different things. Once I hit L.A., I worked for film festivals. I was working on screenplays. Um, and I would think, like, oh, I should have focused more if I'd stuck with one thing. But now that I'm mm-hmm. a novel writer, I just feel like, no, every single thing I ever did feeds my writing. Oh, you know, yeah. The, the, I, use it. I use it myself. Yeah. Yeah, all you of know? it, right? I mean, it's, I mean, it's because I used to be, all your synapses are firing. Right. I mean, I was a hairdresser at one time. So, you know, in a, in a novel I wrote, it was a self-published novel. You know, I have a scene with this kid's cutting somebody's hair. It's like I know exactly how he's doing it, you know, so I, mm-hmm. because I knew how to cut hair. It's like I'm using it. Oh, all of this yeah. stuff, right? And if I if I had yeah. someone who was cutting hair, I'd have to go research it, right? <laughs> I know, I know. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, you just you used use every single thing, yeah. Yeah. Now this is going to be a strange question, but do you know Nicole Schubert? She's a film writer. She's in L.A. and she also writes. Um, I mean, it's like because I know Hollywood in some ways is a small town, and uh, she also wrote a young adult novel called Blue's Heart Green and. You know, there's funny because it is a small town, but I don't know her. Okay, so she also does. She also does improv. So uh, well, I I will say, never did. I never did improv in LA. I confess, I haven't done it since college. But no, unfortunately, I never met her. It's like the publishing world is kind of a small town because we we meet people at conferences, and uh, 
in Hollywood in, sa- in the same, kind of the same vein, you know. Yeah, uh, no, Screenwriters true. tend to that's know true. each other and, you know, the camera people tend to know each other. Improv people tend to know each other. Because so, I thought that would be yeah, funny absolutely. if you knew Nicole. Because I, I interviewed her about a year ago about her novel. Uh-huh. Yeah, no, it sounds like we've had some. Yeah. Screenwriter and, yeah, you've got a lot of things in common. You probably have friends in common. Uh, just like we were I would be surprised about, if we didn't, yeah. Yeah, before we came on the air, uh, you're talking about you're going to be in L.A. meeting together with uh, your a former writers group that is uh, together. So um, mm-hmm, how, mm-hmm. How, what was your process when you when your group would – was this a critique group or was this like a work group or was it a combination No, this was a critique group. It was a critique group, um, which I, I really appreciated having. I was in two different groups in LA and the first one we met every two weeks, which I really liked. I really like mm-hmm. having that kind of deadline. Uh, the group right. that I'm meeting with this coming Sunday is having its 10 year anniversary. We met once a month and um, we would mail each other our work before we met so that when you got mm-hmm. together, you had already read everybody's pages and then we would go around the circle and give notes. And okay. it, it's, it was, it is a terrific group. Everyone's very positive. I mean, but, you know, it's, everyone's able to give real critique, which is important, right? right. If everyone says nice things, that's not helpful. And if everyone mm-hmm. says negative things, it's not helpful. It's a, it's a fine balance. And having a good critique group is gold, not to be underestimated. Right. Um, we were, you and I were talking about, like, that they fall apart a lot or people leave town. But I also think they mm-hmm. fall apart sometimes because you've got a bad apple. Sometimes you've got somebody that is really negative and making everyone feel terrible, but no one has the guts to tell that person that they're out. Like you need to leave. And so everyone just kind of stops going or, you know, Oh, they just sort of, you know, stop calling, you know, like, Oh, we're just not going to do this anymore, which is a shame, you know, um, because sometimes you just got to have the nerve to get rid of the bad apple uh, because the truth is not everybody knows how to give critique, right? I mean, some yeah. people um, don't know how to point out the positive. Um, they can only say, you know, here's, here's what stunk. And that can be mm. really crushing. Yeah. I've had stuff. I've had stuff. I've had scripts that I put back in the drawer and never came out again because I got too harsh a critique. And I, mm. I don't think that that's right, you know. Yeah, because there's, there's merit in, in everything. What I find, you know, as a critiquer, I find I tend to ask a lot of questions on something that I, I don't connect with, yes. then I'll just give mm-hmm. a lot of questions to that person, like, well, why is this like this? Because, you know, and I, I'll even admit, I'll say, I didn't connect with this, but it's, it probably is me. Perhaps it's the genre. Because um, mm-hmm. I don't really connect with, you know, most science fiction I don't connect with. No, I'm not saying all I don't. Same with fantasy. I, I sometimes don't connect with the world building. Um, but some science, some fantasy I do. I, I, it's just that there has to be, and I think it's more of my issue. But one of the things I, as you know, because I'm a writer, I people ask me to review books sometimes, and, I, and I'm thinking, you know, if I don't like a book, I'm not going to review it because I know how hard it is to write even a bad novel. Because I've written many yeah, bad novels, exactly, so I'm exactly. not going to review yeah. a bad novel because it's hard work to do that, and I'm not going to do that to somebody. 
So, and it could could be just my own bias. So, yeah, you know, yeah. why would my I think you're smart matter? though. I think just asking a lot of questions is a is a really good way to go. Yeah, you know, I might be totally off the wall because you know, in my critique group now, we have four different voices, and I find that if all, if all three of my critique partners, if they all find the same things wrong with mine, then I know, okay, I got to fix that. But if only one of them does and the other two, it didn't matter mm-hmm. to them, mm-hmm. then, you know, then I'll think about it and I'll think, no, oh, I'll leave it as it is. But I think that that's you know, great. I mean, I think that that's exactly true. And I think, I think Stephen King says that in, uh, in his book in writing, right? Uh, sorry, mm-hmm. On writing. Is that, on writing. Yeah, that like you, the crowd is right. You know, that if you have one yeah. friend, people yeah. say like, oh, I didn't like that, then you can kind of take it with a grain of salt. But if you have a group, right, if you have more yeah. than one or two people that say, I didn't understand this or this was confusing or I didn't like that character, whatever it is, then you really right. have to listen, which is why it's yeah. important that at some stage in your writing you, you have to show it to, you know, a, a, yeah. a large – no, I'll say a large number, but you know what I mean. You, you've got to – you can't just show it to your spouse. You can't just show it to your best friend. You have to mm-hmm. open it up to the world. Yeah, you have to open it up to people who will be honest with you and – you know, we've all agreed to be brutally honest. I mean, all of us have been published before, so we've been through the, we've been through the editing, which is you know mm-hmm. can be humiliating. We've been through that, so we can kind of all take it. I mean, it still hurts even it. if you've experienced, but uh, you're not going to get better unless you. Well, it's an, if allow... your friends aren't honest, then people on Amazon and Goodreads sure will be. Oh yeah. I tell you my favorite Goodreads review. It's a two-star review, but it's my favorite one because she she put me in her weird books category, and she put me in with, like <laughs> writers like like Haruki Murakami um, and Ruth oh, Ozeki. It's like she put me in with these top-notch writers, and I'm like, right. hey, so- I'm in really good company. I love this. And her review itself was it was really kind of disjointed. It was like a it was like a poem. So I, I love the review because, you know. Listen, I have some on Goodreads that say, or maybe it's Amazon, it doesn't even matter, that, are, that say, cliffhanger, one star. <laughs> That's it. You know, it makes you That's wonder, Just, do they not understand the star system? You know, maybe they think one star know. means a good thing. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, but, but people yeah. were just really mad at me. But they were genuinely mad. They were mad that it was a cliffhanger. Wow. I was like, well, I don't know. It's a series. I mean, I would understand if it was one book, if it was standalone, and I and I, you know, left people hanging. So right. I will I will warn everybody listening right now. Book one ends with a cliffhanger. <laughs> <laughs> book two also does not wrap everything up. Yeah. But I promise, book three. Will not be a cliffhanger, but yeah, I felt like people were mad. Um, well, that's we had discussions yeah. today. I mean, one of my writing partners is she said she's struggling with that now because she's getting ready to. She's got a three book series that she's in the process of writing, and she's like, "Do do I make you know one and two cliffhangers?" And one of the other people and you know said, "Well, I hate cliffhangers." She says, "I want to know." You know, I want it to feel like a complete book in each one. So, you know, and, that, and that's the thing. Like, I, I really hated the way they ended the second Star Wars movie because we had to wait two years to find out <gasps> what happened to Han Solo. Was it only two so, years? Because it felt like ten. 
Maybe it was more um, than that. I mean, it felt No, forever. no, no, I know. Just... But, I mean, I remember it very well and being so, like, horrified. I couldn't believe it yeah. was ending. Um, yeah. I feel like, um, I mean, for me, I, I'm, I am very into three-act structure, and I teach classes mm-hmm. on, like, how to use a three-act structure for the novel. And I feel like each book is an act, you know? So mm-hmm. I, I understand this feeling, and I... I understand the need to feel some sort of closure. And right. I do I do feel like in each of these, you know, that I have wrapped up, you know, like, okay, the, the main um, conflict, you know, or the main problem right. has been solved, you know. And, yes, I have introduced a new problem before the end um, because I want you to want to keep reading. You know, if, yeah, you, if you everything is solved, <laughs> are they, yeah. do you really feel, you know, that you're dying for the next one? I think what's hard for authors now, though, of course, is that because of binge culture and because of people self-publishing, they really think, oh, you're going to write this in a month, you know, or you're going right. to write this in three months. And I'm, I'm just not, you know, I'm, I'm not that yeah. fast. Um, yeah. But what can you do? I'm also sort of like, well, that's going to be a problem for the next year, year and a half, but then mm-hmm. all three will be out forever and you know and everyone yeah. can read them so what's the, all a row we're starting and, to run out of we're starting to run out of time but i, I wanted to ask you what yeah. the, the title of your next because we have time time zero time next and then what's the last one going to be called time's up time's up okay okay well there you go so we know that it's the ending of it so yeah so good well since we are almost out of time um, just give well, give the listeners a little bit about where they can find you and maybe one piece of writing advice, because I have a lot of listeners who are, in fact, writers. Mm. Okay, so um, all the books are in all the usual places. They're on Amazon and iTunes and um, hopefully a lot of local bookstores and, and indie bookstores. I am doing a tour right now. I'm going to be in L.A. this weekend. I'm going to be in Houston on May 19th at River Oaks Bookstore. I will be in New York on June 22nd at World of Wonder. And in all these cities, I'm also doing Girls with Pens workshops. Um, And all of that is uh, on my Facebook page, which is Time Zero Book, at Time Zero Book. Um, and mm-hmm. also on the website, which is timezerobook.com. And all my social media is also, you know, Time Zero Book. So that's all um, pretty easy to find. Um, writing advice. I would say one of the best pieces of writing advice I ever got was that if you wake up and you need to write and you just are feeling out of source and you think, I can't possibly write today because you're depressed or you're tired or you have a headache or you're angry, whatever it is that you take whatever emotion you're feeling and you give it to your character mm-hmm. because not, not only does it allow you to sort of like transfer whatever you're feeling um, and kind of allows you to get through some of that block, but it makes your character much more real. You know, um, because we all do wake up and and go through so many yeah. different emotions during the day that, um, you know, for your character to wake up depressed or, like I said, with a headache or a cold or whatever it is, um, just makes them human. And yeah. that was kind of like a revelatory for me to say, oh, okay, 
So, yeah, I absolutely um, have chapters now where my, you know, character wakes up with a headache um, because that's what I had. And to be, you know, I'm like, and I can describe it in throbbing detail. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, yeah, I think that that's that's a, a really good thing to keep in mind for all writers. Well, Carolyn, you've been a fascinating guest, and I've totally enjoyed our conversation. And, um, you know, best of luck with your upcoming book tour and also writing the third book, Time's, Time's Up. Thank you. So, um, you know, so I want to thank you for talk, taking this hour to uh, talk to my listeners. And hopefully we'll thank sell you some so much for having for me. All right. And uh, best of luck to you. Okay. Bye. Thank you. My cat just wished you good luck, too. I don't know if you heard that. (laughs) (laughs) Even better. Yeah. All righty. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Hey, uh, you've been listening to Carolyn Cahagan, and she's uh, got a series of Time Zero and Time Next. And um, so I hope you've enjoyed this interview. My uh, author next week is Lauren Barat-Logstead, and uh, her book, you know, we're doing a little bit of a flip here. Hers is uh, a zombie It's sort of a comical zombie, kind of like Downton Abbey meets uh, uh, zombies. And uh, so I'm looking forward to talking to her. I'd like to thank all of my listeners. This has been a copyrighted podcast solely owned by the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, LLC. And until next time, this is Laura Moe. You've been listening to The Young Adult Cafe.